Welcome to the Strength Rehab Podcast. Join your hosts, Raul Axmayer and Brandon Parker, as they discuss the latest information regarding the health and fitness industries. Topics include sports performance, physical rehab, and of course, general health. Remember, this is the podcast where science meets practice. Hey guys, thank you for tuning in once again. We had a great conversation with the online sleep coach. We obviously talked about sleep, why it's important, what affects it, and how to sleep better. He really opened my eyes when he talked about how sleep is just more than the duration and how you feel afterwards. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Hey, how's it going, everyone? My name is Nick Lamb. I'm also known as the online sleep coach. Um, been a strength coach and trainer within the industry for about the last eight years. Um, and then the last three or four years, I've been providing ex uh, sleep, sleep coaching extensively. Um, and then about the last year, I kind of ventured into education for other coaches and other practitioners on sleep. Um, so that's kind of my main focus now, um, putting together an online course, doing some in-person workshops, obviously most of which are canceled or rescheduled at this point. Um, but yeah. How did you start studying sleep and why? Yeah, so I... I was, like I said, a trainer and, uh, and strength coach, but I was working, I've mostly worked in the rehabilitation setting. Um, so I was working in an integrated PT clinic, um, a lot of different professionals under the same roof, which is awesome. Um, so I was always a little bit geared more towards the health side of things. So all the other variables that go into making someone obviously overall healthy, and then also kind of what predisposes someone to injury over, over someone else, right? And in, in similar situations. So, you know, kind of led me down the path of diving into a lot of different health and wellness variables, things like heart rate variability, stress management, and sleep obviously was a big component of that. It kept coming up over and over again. It was coming up a lot with my clients that I was working with. And I just really became fascinated by everything about it, how there was this one lever that you could pull that could influence so much, right? So when we talk about like, you know, all the things that we're trying to accomplish with people, I mean, sleep can have an influence in some, some shape or form. And then, you know, like a year ago, when I started venturing into the education for other coaches and practitioners, you know, I was surprised at how little like practical education there was for other practitioners and how much it was, how little attention it was getting in our coaching space, right, relative to exercise and nutrition. So, you know, we always talk about these three pillars of health as exercise, nutrition, and sleep. And obviously, we're coaching up exercise quite a bit. We're coaching up nutrition all the time, um, but we're not doing the same thing with sleep. And in my opinion, we should be viewing it in a very similar way where we should actually be prioritizing in our coaching. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, so when it comes down to it, it with anybody that's had a client and you start to talk to them about their sleep, it's something that they almost deem impossible to change. They're like, Oh, I can't do this, this, and that because I have all these activities I have to get done. So how does that conversation look for you and how do you redirect that thought process? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, this is part of why the coaching piece is so important because a lot of people do have that mindset, right? Is, is educating the person on why, just how important it is. And, you know, having, and this is again, where I think there's an area that's lacking is, you know, we, we would just have conversations with people about sleep where we ask, you know, usually the, how the conversation goes for a typical strength coach or therapist or whoever it is might be, how well do you sleep? Mm -hmm. oh, I sleep pretty good. Oh, how many hours? I get about six, seven, maybe. All right, cool. So tell me about your nutrition, right? So there's no structure to the conversation that you're having with the person. And then there's no like hierarchy or coaching process to where you actually go from there. So, you know, kind of what I've done is based on my experience is put together that coaching construct, right? Or like an assessment process, a screening process, 
where to start, where to go, what to prioritize. Mm. And it's just really going through that much, like I said, much like anything else, much like you would do for, for exercise and nutrition. It's just kind of knowing where you're starting, knowing where you're trying to end up um, and then, you know, gearing your process towards that. So when it comes to sleep hygiene, what are, what are supposed to be our top priorities? Yeah. So I think, <clears throat> I think the, the term sleep hygiene is not is, is good in a way, but it's, it's also partly part of the problem. So I think if we look at the options that are available for people who are struggling with sleep, it's either sleeping pills, which we can certainly talk about, and those come with some serious health risks, um, or it's sleep hygiene, right? It's these list of tips that aren't necessarily specific to that person. Again, there's no hierarchy, no prioritization. So, you know, we would never do that from an exercise standpoint, right? We would never have someone come in, we know they need to start exercising, and we just give them the top 10 list of exercises and say, go have at it, you know, good luck, right? We coach them through that process. So, I mean, I think that's, that's, the, that's the first kind of distinction. Um, but the hierarchy for me is, in my experience, and again, why I think coaching is so important, is the vast majority of sleep issues, especially when we talk about chronic sleep issues, people who've been really struggling for a long time, it's pretty behavioral in nature. So, you know, we can kind of talk about a lot of things that fit under that behavior bucket, but it's pretty behavioral in nature. Um, the next thing that we should be thinking about and talking about a lot, and I think this is going to gain more notoriety, is just circadian biology in general, right? The importance of circadian rhythms and the impact that they not only have on, you know, sleep and sleep health, but overall health, overall performance, and just how important that synchronicity is. So, you know, I think there's a lot of, a lot of different variables that we should be, you know, really looking at and prioritizing in, in the coaching space or the rehabilitative space. So we know that behavior is a huge component for, let's say, chronic insomnia or sleep difficulty. How would you help people change those behaviors towards sleeping? And like, they might think, well, I've, I haven't been sleeping for the last five, 10 years. Like, I can't change anything. How would you address that? Yeah, so exa it's exactly that. So the first thing is that you, know, you have to address some of the negative thoughts and perceptions that people have around sleep. And you, you find this pretty often, especially when it's someone who, like you said, has been dealing with sleep issues for a long time, right? So um, a couple of things with that, you want to give them some things in the beginning parts of that process that help them build a little confidence, right? A few nights of good sleep goes a long way. Um, and a lot of it comes down to what I call thought restructuring with people as well. So, you know, a lot of times people have these perceptions and they have these myths and conceptions and obviously and misconceptions and obviously you know sleep is incredibly important but people dramatize it so you know the idea of like if i don't get eight hours tonight you know my life is over right i'm going to get fired from my job i'm not going to be able to function i'm not you know and these are the things that people are actually thinking and that actually perpetuate so you know i do thought restructuring with people quite a bit i think this is something we should probably be doing across the board right but it's having them write down what those negative dramatizations and, and thoughts are on paper. You know, we try and restructure them in a positive light, um, bring some realistic aspect to it. Um, and then we just practice it as, you know, kind of silly as it sounds, we practice it. So whether it's positive affirmation, like them actually saying it out loud, whether it's, you know, integrating it into conversation with someone else or, you know, writing it somewhere that they can see it on a regular basis before they go to bed. Um, you know, there's a lot of different strategies within that. Um, and then, you know, for a lot of people, it's just the prioritization aspect, right? They're just not prioritizing sleep mm -hmm. enough. Um, and that comes down to on us as coaches, practitioners to really educate them. And, you know, usually what I spend a lot of time on is obviously goals, right? And I think this is something we again all do. We mm -hmm. figure out what our clients goals are, we figure out what's ultimately important to them and why. And then I connect sleep to that. 
And usually the good thing because sleep influences so much is there's usually a way that I can tie sleep into what someone's goals are, whether it's from a health perspective, you know, injury, performance, you know, we can find a way to tie sleep in in some way, just trying to create more of that, that buy-in. What are some of the most common risks of taking sleeping pills? Yeah, so, <clears throat> so there's a lot of things here with sleeping pills, and I think we continue to learn more and more. The first thing to note with sleeping pills is, for the most part, they're not inducing what we call naturalistic sleep. So they're not inducing, if we had you in a sleep lab, right, and we hooked you up to, you know, polysomnography equipment, and we were looking at all this stuff, and looked at your brain waves. Brain waves is how we distinguish what's going on in sleep. And when then we compare that to someone who's on sleeping pills, most of which, most of which are sedatives, it's different. So we're not in, in most cases, you're, you're actually inducing sedation as opposed to sleep. And this is kind of a similar thing with alcohol, right? People that have a, a nightcap, right? And they say, oh, I, I passed right out after a glass of wine. Exactly. You passed out, right? You sedated your brain. You didn't induce sleep. So I think that's the first distinction and thing that's really important to, to, to point out. Um, the next thing is that most sleeping pills were approved and tested for short-term use. And in, and in certain instances, again, I'm not a healthcare practitioner, so I'm not coaching people necessarily to what to do with sleeping pills, but I'm sometimes a part of the process after the fact. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the thing with sleeping pills is in short-term use, right? That's what they were originally for, but people are taking them for months and even years. Right. And originally, you know, we didn't really know what those outcomes would be if people are taking them for that long. But now we're starting to see and we're basically able to link, you know, sleeping pills, sleeping pill use with mortality, um, risk for certain diseases, certain, in, certain cancers, like cancer of the prostate, cancer of the bowel, uh, cancer of the breast. So unfortunately, and it's a linear relationship. So the more sleeping pills that you take, the higher that risk. So, you know, it's pretty scary stuff. And, you know, I'm not a big proponent of instilling fear in people from a coaching perspective. I think it works against you. Um, in most instances, but it's just, it's important to have the facts and know what the facts are. Um, and then, you know, when you get into like the behavioral aspect, it doesn't address the root cause taking a sleeping pill, right? And this is any medication, um, but doesn't address the root cause. People become dependent on it, obviously. And then, you know, when they come off of it, they actually end up getting insomnia or sleep issues. That's even worse. We call it rebound insomnia. So, you know, it's not to look down on anyone who's taking them or any professional who's prescribing them. Again, we go back to there being little practical options for people. So there's not a lot of sleep coaches. There's not a lot of people talking about things in this way. So you can see where people turn to, you know, to sleeping pill use. And obviously as with anything, it's easier to just prescribe a medication than, and be coached. Of course. Up, so. I mean, it makes sense. Uh, you know, you have the third shift workers that are working the graveyard shift and, you know, in help in order for them to go to sleep in the middle of the day, they probably would take melatonin or they would sedate themselves. And they're, they're linked to the highest mortality rates uh, amongst all Americans. So it makes a lot of sense what you're saying. And um, I was just curious, like when you have somebody that has that, that rigid job where they can't really get out of the graveyard shift and they do need to sleep, what would be those tips that you would give somebody like that? That's not yeah, sleeping so, pills. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really unfortunate, you know, for those, for those people in a lot of instances. And, you know, for the vast majority of people that are in that situation, they, they're, they're the people who are really giving back the most. Like, you know, I mean, they're the, they're the, the doctors and nurses and EMTs and, and police officers and firefighters. And so it's really unfortunate that's, that that's the case. The biggest thing 
you know, you first and foremost, like, like we always say from a fitness perspective, you can't make someone a good desk worker, right? Like you can't, I can't make you good at sitting at a desk all day. There's just, I mean, we can mitigate it and try and fight against it, but there's nothing I could do to make you a good desk worker. I can't make someone, you know, a good shift worker. We, we know that there's an increased risk from a lot of different avenues. The biggest way to help is that circadian rhythm. So when we talk about what regulates your circadian rhythm, the first is there's a genetic component to this, right? Which we can talk more about. The second is the environmental factors, the things that we can, the variables and levers that we can pull to influence it. So if you're a shift worker and you work shift regularly, you have to go opposite of that circadian rhythm. So you have to take what a normal person's circadian rhythm is and those variables of light, darkness, temperature, and you have to flip them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when we talk about like during their shift, like get a daylight lamp and try to get a lot of daylight, even though it's nighttime, right? Get mm -hmm. the, the daylight lamps that can mimic the lux of what we would similarly get with natural daylight get a lot of that during your shift, especially in the, the first early parts of your shift. Mm -hmm. Wear sunglasses when you're driving home. Get home and black out your shades completely. Um, that's, I mean, light is just one variable, you know, food timing, all of those things. You basically have to take a circadian rhythm that's just flip-flopped of everyone else and then keep it consistent. And that's really the only way to, you know, kind of mitigate or work against it, at least to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. We know that literature says that poor sleep, um, is highly correlated with decreased performance and increased pain. Do you, could you explain how, like, the reason why it influences it so much? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of things, and I think, firstly, like, what I always dispel with people is people look at sleep as being solely a period of rest, right? But it's a very active time in a lot of different ways, and sleep impacts every single physiological system of your body, right? So it impacts the immune system. It impacts your autonomic nervous system. It's the regulator of your autonomic nervous system and it impacts the endocrine system. So when you talk about, you know, balance of certain hormones. So when you're talking about the rehab process, whether it's injury, pain, whatever it is, every facet of that is going to be influenced in some way. There's even mechanisms that they've discovered now where tissue healing and how it occurs during sleep and different stages of sleep. Um, we know that sleep impacts pain experience. They've done studies where they've looked at pain perception being a lot higher. People perceive their pain as being a lot higher and more intense when they're not getting sleep. Um, so there's not, I mean, there's not one, it impacts inflammation um, quite a bit. Again, it's a regulator of the autonomic nervous system. So I don't think there's one necessarily one reason why. I think you just have to look at it from all these different avenues and the fact that sleep impacts pretty much every single system of the body in some way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that uh, there was like some genetic variability amongst circadian, ry circadian rhythms. Thank you. Could you like shed more light on that? Yeah, absolutely. So we call these chronotypes and they basically discovered a few years ago, um, they've kind of known, I mean, I think everyone's known about these chronotypes, at least to a certain extent for a while. Um, but a few years ago, there was a gene that was discovered, the, the PER gene and different variants on this gene have people's clock run a little bit different. And it's not first first and foremost, it's not as drastic as people sometimes make it out to be, right? There's not a chronotype that has people going, preferably going to bed at 6 p.m. and then some people going to bed at 3 a.m., right? The difference between the earliest and the latest, we're talking like a, a few hours at the most, right? Two to three hours. Um, basically, the, the best categorization of these chronotypes comes from uh, Dr. Michael Bryce. He's also known as the sleep doctor. He wrote a book called The Power of When, and it's four categories. 
they're based off of animals and how they um, interact in the environment, how, how they sleep in the environment. So the first is lions, and these are your early, rider, or early risers, what we would typically call morning larks. And you know, their rhythm obviously runs earlier. So there's a lot of different facets to each of these circadian rhythms as well, where it's not just sleep timing, right? A lot of things fall on this. So obviously lions are gonna do their most productive work early in the day. Um, earlier in the day is better for them to exercise. There's a, a good time for them to have caffeine. So a lot of things can fall on this preferred clock. Um, you don't have to live your life completely structured that way, but just understanding there's a lot of things that fall on this clock. Um, the next is bears, and this makes up around half of the population, if not a little bit more. And bears basically coincide with the rise and fall of the sun. Um, and this is like somewhere in the middle of the extremes. Then you have wolves. So wolves are on the complete other end of the spectrum as lions, where, you know, they're your night owl type, right? They're doing their most creative work at night. And then the last is an interesting subset, which makes up around 10 to 15% of the population called dolphins. And these are those who it's difficult to align them with an ideal circadian rhythm because of the fact that they have higher levels of stress and anxiety typically. So they are more likely to deal with sleep issues, right? They're more likely to have insomnia and just, so it was, that category was kind of created out of a, a need of, you know, not knowing where to categorize some of the other, um, you know, some of the other people. How would one go about deciding if they were a bear, dolphin, wolf, and so forth? Yeah. So there's, there's, there's quite a few resources. There's, um, there's some questionnaires that have been around for a long time mm -hmm. um, that don't necessarily distinguish between the four, but they distinguish between just kind of morning lark, night owl, and right. somewhere in the middle. So there's the morning evening, this questionnaire. Um, there is the Munich um, chronotype questionnaire. And then if you go to powerofwhenquiz.com, that's the quiz that Dr. Michael Bryce actually created and then helps you kind of pinpoint um, which of those four categories that we talked about you are. So let, let's say like if we were a strength coach or uh, some kind of performance coach that we want to get the optimal results from our athletes, would we take this into consideration? Like, okay, you are a morning lark. We want you to be performing in the morning, given that the competition has nothing to play on it. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So, I mean, this is probably the easiest to implement at like the professional level where mm -hmm. there's a lot more autonomy, a lot more flexibility and like setting up structure um, for, for the athletes or people that you're working with. I mean, when we're talking about working with like the general population, that becomes a little more difficult, but it's mm -hmm. definitely something that strength coaches or rehab professionals or anyone should understand and try to get as close to that as possible. Like know when the optimal window is, I mean, there's, Based on these rhythms, there's a time when your blood pressure is at its highest, when your body temperature is at its highest, when your concentration is at its highest, when your um, peak ability to generate force is at its highest. So I think there's definitely a, you know, a way to, to think about that and optimize it. You know, same goes for just people understanding it in general, like in the corporate space, you know, know when you're going to be at your most productive and try to schedule your productive meetings then. And so there's a lot of different you know, things that you can try and enhance once you have that knowledge. Now, now taking this one step further, we had these athletes that had to compete at a certain time of the day, uh, mm -hmm. moving their moving towards the competition itself. Is there a way for the athlete to, over a long period of time, adapt their circadian rhythm to their demands? There is, knowing that it'll never be 100% optimal, right? Okay. Understanding that. So it kind of comes back to like, you know, the example of shift workers. We can certainly mm -hmm. help them quite a bit, but we can't, I can't make it so that your natural rhythm is 
shed work, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. But because a big part of circadian rhythms is influenced by your environment, that's half the equation. So you certainly can manipulate it. And I think you could probably move what someone's preferred time would be, maybe 30, 45 minutes in either direction. Mm -hmm. But understanding there's always going to be that genetic component that's there. Um, so it'll just be less than, than optimal, but you try to, you just try to make, make do with as much as possible. Right. This, I think this goes into a lot of like facets of what we do with people is like, it's not natural to be an athlete. Right. Mm -hmm. So like you can't, you know, you can't make someone an amazing athlete without sacrificing some element of the human being. Right. And mm -hmm. I think that's just, that's another element of it. I have a weird question, but personally, when I sleep, like, let's say nine to 10 hours or more than eight hours, I wake up like super, super tired compared than when I sleep, let's say four to five hours. Same. I obviously um, sleep eight or more hours daily, but mm -hmm. why does that weird thing happen? So there's a couple, there's a couple reasons and a couple things that could be, could be at play. Firstly, there is, there is such a thing as too much sleep. Um, okay. So when you look at like mortality risk, actually, and where the amount of seven to nine hours came from, or part of where that came from was looking at the lowest mortality risk being between like seven and nine hours. And you know, when you go above that, there's actually an increased mortality risk. It's actually the highest mortality risk. So it's a higher mortality risk to sleep 10 hours versus five hours. Um, as crazy as that sounds, part of that is because people who tend to be sleeping 10 to 11 hours consistently are usually sick. Mm -hmm. um, But there is a detriment to sleeping too much. Um, sleeping too much can mean, if we talk about like autonomic nervous system and imbalance, it can mean you're actually too parasympathetic. Um, so that could be that could be a part of it. Um, but probably the biggest thing is either that you're because you're sleeping too much and your body's not used to it. It's so far out of whack of what your circadian rhythm mm -hmm. is and what you typically get and crave that it's just it's you know you're throwing off your rhythm and throwing off your rhythm is never going to feel good you're always mm -hmm. going to feel like you're kind of playing catch up and this is why people shouldn't catch up on sleep on the on the weekends um yeah. so there's definitely that element of where you know you're just throwing off your um your rhythm a little bit hmm, makes sense would you say this there's a quote-unquote uh perfect amount of hours people should sleep like you know people say like oh eight hours is the sweet spot but we know everyone's different Yeah, I think I think it's important to note everyone is different. So, you know, the, this, the, I think in general, if you're aiming to get seven to nine hours in that range, I think is you can't you can't go wrong. But I think people get too focused on the duration. And the only measure that they have for sleep, health and success is the duration. And I think that's where people miss the boat because you lose sight of some of the other variables and some of the other things like quality. So, you know, the four pillars of healthy sleep are obviously duration is one of them quality and depth. Um, the third is regularity. So that comes down to keeping a healthy circadian rhythm. Mm -hmm. And then the last is continuity. So continuity basically means your sleep cycles aren't getting fragmented at any point in the night. They're continuous. So, so how can, okay, go ahead. No, so go ahead. So how can you increase your quality of sleep? So there's a lot of things that, that go into, you know, the quality Um, having an actually aligned circadian rhythm plays a big role, right? The balance of your autonomic nervous system can play a significant role, right? What, are, what the routine that you have leading into bed plays a significant role. The temperature um, plays a significant role, both at the onset and in the middle of the night. If you get, you know, an increased temperature in the middle of the night and core body temperature, that's going to disrupt your, your quality. So again, I think it comes back to having that hierarchy and prioritization system and like checking all the boxes and make sure that you're 
addressing all the big things. And, you know, typically that's going to reflect in better sleep quality. Are there any certain foods uh, besides caffeine that negatively affect your quality of sleep? Um, really? in, terms of specific, in terms of specific foods, um, I think firstly, it's the timing is more important because it's a, a regulator of the circadian rhythm. And if you eat too late in the night, um, it elevates your core body temperature, which works against you from the standpoint of sleep. So I think not to say that what you eat doesn't matter, but I think in the context of sleep and sleep quality, when you eat is even more important, but it's kind of the typical things that you would think of. Um, spicy foods are, are a big no close to bed, you know, then you're dealing with acid reflux. And I mean, that's just, obviously you don't want to go down that road. Um, you know, simple sugars, certain grains, again, if we're eating those things too late in the day, you know, your body is prioritizing having to deal with them in a little bit of a different way. Um, any food that causes any kind of intolerance or anything like that. So it's kind of all the things that you would really think of already. Um, but the, the timing is, I think, where people lose, um, lose sight. It's just as, if not more important. Um, and then caffeine, obviously, you mentioned big, uh, big impact. We could definitely talk more about that. Alcohol plays a big role as well. Ac alcohol actually robs you of your REM sleep. So your emotionally rest restorative sleep. Um, and it also fragments your sleep. So it disrupts that continuity that we talked about earlier. So, and uh, unfortunately, THC does something very similar. So, you know, I get a lot of questions asking, um, asking about, you know, THC and about CBD. THC, again, seems to have a similar effect, at least to what we know this, this, to this point on sleep quality, where it's robbing you of your REM sleep. CBD tends to be a little more promising, although we don't quite know the dosing. Um, the dosing seems to be very specific and very important where too much or too little can have an adverse effect. So I think more research just needs to be done to kind of understand what that impact really is. Um, but there, there is promise there for sure. So what steps did you take to optimize your sleep? How do you know that you are getting the optimal amount of sleep compared to your circadian rhythm and your lifestyle? Yeah. So, I mean, for me personally, I've, having, you know, having coached people and having, I always test something out on myself before, you know, I implement it with clients. And so I've kind of gone through like all of the, the whole process, all of the hacks, pretty much everything you could think of. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of like tracking success, I mean, I track heart rate variability alongside what I do and I've been tracking heart rate variability for quite some time. So I have a lot of data, um, sleep trackers I do use, I currently use an O ring and we could talk more about trackers and what they do and don't do. Mm -hmm. um, but Honestly, the, the biggest thing is I think for people to be honest with the subjective measures and things that are really important to you. So, you know, are you waking up needing caffeine right away or can you get a natural boost of energy right when you wake up? You know, do you feel like you need a nap in the middle of the day? Um, do you get fatigued? Can you focus? Like, I think these are all the things where people have a new norm and baseline that's set mm -hmm. and they haven't been sleeping that well for a long period of time. And so, you know, it just becomes this new norm where they've forgotten what it's like to not need caffeine. And, you know, um, so I think those, those are the best ways to really measure success. If you're being honest with those variables and where you're at with them in your life, I think that's probably the, the best way. How many time or hours do you think it's optimal to like whenever I last eat or drink caffeine and they go to sleep? People say like different six hours, seven hours, but what do you think it's? So there is a difference person to person. Everyone metabolizes caffeine a little bit differently. So the enzyme that breaks down caffeine, you know, you get some who are like the enzyme works quickly and some where the enzyme works a little bit slower. But even for the fast metabolizers, we're talking the half-life of caffeine being around six hours, five to six hours, meaning 
half of that has been broken down and half is still in your, um, in your, your bloodstream. So, I mean, keeping that in mind for some people, it's, it's much slower. So for some people we're talking like, you know, 10, 12 hours where half of it is still circulating in your, your bloodstream 10 to 12 hours, even the quarter life sometimes is up to like 12, 14 hours. So I think most people inherently know what their tolerance is to caffeine. If you're someone who's more sensitive to caffeine, you typically are someone who metabolizes it slower. So you're going to be the person who it may be 12 hours to really get it out of your, um, your bloodstream. So it's kind of just knowing how you tolerate caffeine, but you know, the general rule for me, and I don't like to make generalizations, but if you're say your bedtime is like 10, 11 o'clock trying to stop caffeine intake around like 12 or one o'clock. Mm -hmm. When it comes to, uh, I guess I have two questions about naps first. So a short, quick question would be, uh, I, I know a lot of people would do like these coffee naps. They'll drink some coffee. They'll take like a quick 15 to 30 minute nap. What do you think about those? The nappuccino? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there's, there's definitely merit to it. I think as long as, so I have some principles that I think are important when it comes to naps. And as long as you're adhering to those principles, I think any form of, well, not any form, but a form of nap is perfectly fine, including the nappuccino. It does work. It is effective. Mm -hmm. um, the nappuccino, for anyone who doesn't know, is basically you down some espresso or you down some coffee, and then you take a nap right away. Um, about 20 to 30 minutes because that's how long it takes for the caffeine to actually kick in. So then you wake up and you have the caffeine um, lifting you up. So nothing wrong with that. But the principles that I have to naps are, firstly, if you're someone who is struggling with sleep, especially falling asleep, I typically discourage against naps because one of the powerful mechanisms that helps you to sleep and get good quality sleep is the buildup of sleep pressure, right? It's a combination of these chemicals, the most common of which is adenosine, that's how caffeine actually works. It binds to the receptors in the brain that are typically for adenosine and blocks them. So if you're napping and you're depleting that sleep pressure. So when you're someone who's really struggling with sleep, you want a good, healthy sleep pressure at night. That's really going to work in your favor. In some instances, we even restrict people staying up later. So they build up more of that sleep pressure and it just kind of knocks them out. Mm -hmm. um, they can't fight against that sleep pressure. And it works, again, to build that confidence like we talked about earlier. So the first principle is if you're someone who's struggling with sleep, you shouldn't uh, nap, at least for not, not for right now. Um, the second thing is duration and timing matter, just like everything else. So I usually like at least seven to eight hours between end of nap and bedtime for the exact reason of that sleep pressure, allow time for it to build back up. And then the duration of naps is important. They should either be one of two categories. They should either be kind of that 20 to 30 minute power nap where we're just trying to basically get a cognitive reset, or you should be aiming for a full cycle of sleep, right? Where we go through all the stages of sleep. So in that case, we're looking at more like 80 to 90 minutes. And I think anything more or less than that or in between that, and you're kind of missing the boat and you have the potential to be pulled out of in the middle of sleep stages, and that's never going to feel good. We've all experienced that kind of sleep yeah. inertia. So I think those are, as long as you're adhering to the principles of naps and it doesn't affect your nighttime sleep, you know, it's perfectly fine. Nice. I always have this problem, and this is why I personally don't nap, is like, you know, all right, I'll put 30 minutes on the clock, or I'll put 90 minutes on the clock, and I'll lay down. I'm like, all right, now I only have 45 minutes. Or like, you know, say I'm counting down as I'm, I'm basically putting so much pressure on how much time I have left, and I think it winds up me getting ripped out in the middle of my sleep cycle, and then I just feel terrible. So yeah. is that a common thing? Yeah, definitely common. You know, also common that I get is like, I tried to sleep 20, 30 minutes and then I just slept through my alarm and I ended up sleeping two hours. 
And in that case, you probably have a, a large sleep debt, what we call sleep debt built up, mm-hmm. where your body is just craving physiologically so much more of that sleep. And in those cases, you should probably just not be napping right now until you get your nighttime sleep in you know, better, a better situation. And then you can kind of come back and, and revisit it. But, but what you're saying is definitely common. And, mm-hmm. and it's common at night too, actually. And this is part of the problem with the duration. You know, people do that like counting down. They like look at their clock and they're like, shit, I'm supposed to get eight hours. Now I can only get seven and a half. And then they look again at the clock and they're like, shit, now I can only get seven, right? And so <laughs> on and so forth. So this is why like I typically don't like for people to have a visible alarm clock mm-hmm. where they can see the time. I like them to put it on the other side of the room, um, you know, preferably not have it be the phone um, because you don't want to be clock watching. That's never going to work, uh, work in your favor. How do you deal with those people that have trouble falling asleep? Um, so, I mean, first, first is figuring out what the reason is why they might be falling asleep, right? So what is the reason? Are they, is it because they're worried about falling asleep, right? Is it more of that like negative thought process that they might have? Is their autonomic nervous system just way too jacked up? You know, what are they doing in the hour before bed that might be ramping them up? Um, are they keeping their bed and bedroom a really powerful trigger for sleep is really important. So, you know, if they're, creating this routine on an ongoing basis where the last hour of the night they're actually in their bed and bedroom doing other shit um it works against you having that kind of sanctuary of sleep so i usually only have people do in the bedroom sleep and sex that's it right there shouldn't be any other activity that's done in the bedroom because your brain is going to be very associative so it just comes down to figuring out why it is that they might be um having them why why they might be having that reason falling asleep And then, you know, coaching them through it. So this is, again, why that coaching is so important. We have to, you know, if you look at someone, I always liken it to exercise and nutrition, right? But if you have someone and you look at a squat and it doesn't look right, you're going to figure out why, right? You're going to break it down further. Same applies to sleep. So we got to, you know, you got to put your coaching hat on and and look at, Mm -hmm. look at it through that lens. Sweet. Go on, go on. What are some quote unquote uh, sleep hacks? I know there's no such thing as hack, but yeah, Um, that anyone could benefit from. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think I, I tend to not, I don't like to give too many of like the hacks and lists just because I think I'm in the coaching space and trying to work against that where we're looking at things mm-hmm. through the coaching. But the, the biggest thing that I found impactful is the, that stimulus control, which is what I just talked about that association yeah. between the bed and bedroom, mainly because I think that's low hanging fruit for everyone. And everyone's kind of screwing that up right now. Um, I've talked to a lot of people, whether it's coaches or the general population who are not practicing this. So I think the simple act of doing that, I mean, I've done it where I have it so powerful now. I always use this example where my wife is a pillow talker. She loves to talk like when we, our head hits the pillow and she's like, you know, tell me about your day and what are we going to do about this? And we're going to do about that. But for me, it's become so powerful of an association that I usually fall asleep on her and it drives her crazy. But like, for me, as soon as I'm in the bed and like my head hits the pillow, that's it, right? It's game over. So mm-hmm. um, that's the idea. You want to create as power, that powerful of an association as possible. Um, because I think the overactive sympathetic nervous system is such a big driver. Um, breath work right before bed, I find very impactful. Yeah. Um, journaling is super impactful. And like, this doesn't have to be a diary journal. It can literally just be a brain dump. So I usually just have people write down all their to-dos, worries, thoughts, right? Get it on paper. There's something about actually physically having that on paper that has you not thinking about it when your head hits the pillow, right? I think it really works against us that typically the only time that people think and really get a a second to process is when they're laying down to sleep. 
and they mm-hmm. process the whole day, especially right now with everything that's going on, right? That's like when we really digest everything. But in the context of sleep, that's the absolute opposite of what you want. So um, implementing some journaling, I think, is, is huge. Um, so. Sweet. What's your thoughts on blue light and like the nighttime scrollers right before bed? Yeah, so it's super important. The problem, the only problem I have with it and like people focusing on it is they lose sight of a lot of the other things. So like, if mm-hmm. I look at my prioritization, we're going to get to this when we go like the circadian route and I coach people to a better circadian rhythm, but mm-hmm. the environmental factors are like the last thing I get to, because I think people already know about them and they're already focusing on them. Not to say it's not important because it certainly is, but, but yeah, I mean, blue, blue light is certainly di- very disruptive. Like this is super well worked out. Um, we know that blue light you know, is very disruptive from a circadian perspective. It's going to blunt not only the amount of melatonin that you release, melatonin being the hormone that signals the start of sleep. Um, mm-hmm. It's also going to delay when the melatonin is actually released. So mm-hmm. it's, it's pretty clear and worked out. We know that this is detrimental to sleep and sleep quality, but just keeping in mind, it's not the, the only thing. So like if you cut out screen time, but don't address those other variables and other things that we've talked about, you know, you're still going to be potentially dealing with, <clears throat> with issues. Um, a thing that I get asked a lot is, well, how do you find the balance of like a lot of people use, you know, reading on an ebook or mm-hmm. they'll watch TV because that's their wind down. Like that's what relaxes them. My hierarchy has the autonomic nervous system being more important than environment and technology, right? It mm-hmm. comes um, on a more, more of a hierarchy. So because of that, I don't discourage people from watching TV before bed necessarily, as long as you allow a little buffer. So as long as you don't go from TV to, to bedroom. But if you do something else a little bit lower level, whether it's breath work or reading an actual book or something else for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and then go into the bedroom and you have your bedroom set up to be this sanctuary for sleep, I still think that the, the benefit to it relaxing you it is is still worth it. Yeah, definitely. You good? Yeah. You've been such a wealth of knowledge. It's insane because I didn't think that the fact that you brought sleep coaching into in a relation or connection to regular coaching when it comes to movements is it was mind blowing to me. And there's a lot of there's a lot of factors and intricate things that most people don't even think about. And you're, you're correct. It's all, it's usually just a two question conversation. Just like how, how's, how long is it and how's it feel? But yeah, yeah, bringing out the nuance is definitely getting me really interested. What was the the book recommendations you had? Uh, So I have a couple. Um, One is the power of when by Dr. Michael Bryce. And we can, I mean, I can send you guys all these, you can, you know, link them in in show notes or or anything like that. I'll do it. Um, the Circadian Code by Sachin Panda is another really good one when we talk about like circadian rhythms and circadian health. Um, I'm, mo- I'm sure most people have read or heard of Why We Sleep by Dr. Matthew Walker, mm-hmm. just keeping in mind that he's a sleep researcher. So his goal is to create awareness about sleep. Mm-hmm. So firstly, never recommend a client read the book because especially if they're struggling with sleep, they're going to feel like absolute shit after reading yeah. <laughs> it. The vast majority of the book is basically just pointing out all the things that happen when you don't get sleep. So it's going to create a lot more stress and anxiety. And there's not a lot of practical takeaways from it. But if you really want to dive into like just how important sleep is and how much it really has an impact, it's a good, uh, a good resource. But, but yeah, man, I mean, I'm really, I'm passionate about making that change where more coaches are embracing or rehab professionals or anyone really healthcare practitioner wise is embracing, you know, looking at sleep in a different way. I mean, 
I'm obviously going to make the case that it's more important than exercise and nutrition because that's what I do. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, you really could make that argument because of the fact that it influences pretty much everything, right? It's this one lever that influences everything, mm -hmm. including those other two variables. So it can set you up for success or failure with exercise and nutrition, right? It impacts right. your motivation to exercise, your ability to perform when you exercise, your risk of getting injured when you exercise, how you rehab from an injury. Um, from a nutrition perspective, it, in, it influences the amount of calories you take in, the decisions you make surrounding those calories, what your body does preferentially with those calories, right? So, I mean, if we're not coaching sleep and viewing it as foundational, I think we're missing the boat on like the impact that we can really have with people. 100%. Where can everyone find you? Yeah, so I'm on uh, all the typical social media platforms as the online sleep coach. Um, website is onlinesleepcoach.com um, because more of the audience is coaches and practitioners. I'm going to be releasing a comprehensive course on sleep and recovery. Um, and it's really going to go through the entire coaching process and everything that we talked about, obviously, much more in depth. Um, and that you can find out details on at sleepcoachcourse.com. Um, I'm hoping to have the course launched and out by like June, July ish, um, yeah. somewhere in that time frame. So I'll post all of that hyperlinked on the show notes so everyone can find you. Cool. Awesome. And thank you for your time. Thank you for being on, man. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys for, uh, for having me on. It's a pleasure.